0: you to take out your Bibles, please, and turn to Romans chapter 3 once again, as we have slowed down to uh, try to take in uh, this passage, this great passage called the center of the Bible, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. So please open your Bibles there. I hope you're doing well in memorizing this passage together. Uh, Our family is about halfway through, so uh, hopefully we're going to be ready to recite it. Uh, with the rest of you on October 31st, Reformation Sunday. So please keep working at that. Uh, You'll be glad that you did. And I want to read that passage once again as we begin our sermon today. So please turn with me there if you haven't already. Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. And if you have memorized it, uh, go right ahead and quote as I read. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This morning I would like for us to consider just a part of verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. That phrase, by his grace as a gift. what we've been trying to do is highlight these vocabulary words, this terminology of our salvation. And we come now to the word grace. I know we have dealt with other passages chronologically and we're coming back to this, but I believe it's actually helpful for us to understand all these wonderful words that describe our salvation. What was the motive behind God providing this for us? And the answer to that is grace. So I'd like to preach to you this morning a message entitled, Keeping Grace Amazing. Keeping Grace Amazing. John Newton, of course, is one of the most famous Christians that we have in church history. I know that you're probably familiar with the name John Newton, but he had a very painful childhood. When he was seven years old, his godly mother died, and when John was only 11 years old, He went with his dad, followed his dad's footsteps into the shipping business, and he joined a ship that began um, a life of a sailor for him. And a life of a sailor then, and sometimes even now, can be a pretty wicked uh, lifestyle or vocation, and it certainly was at that time. He was involved in the slave trading industry, and when he was just about 18 years old, he became the captain of one of these slave trading ships. They would make their... Way from West Africa, and then they would go from West Africa to the West Indies and America to deliver these slaves. But on March 10th, 1748, as he was sailing from Africa to England after one of these slave trading routes, they sailed through a very fierce storm, and according to his biography, it put the literal fear of God in John Newton he began to remember some of the things his mother had taught him as a child. He also had some Christian books, and he had a Bible that he began to read during those moments. And the Spirit of God placed seeds in his heart that led to his conversion just a few weeks later. John, of course, after being converted to Christ, gave up the shipping business, gave up the slave trading business, And actually became an abolitionist who was a good friend with William Wilberforce. But during the ministry of John Newton, he was a pastor in England, he also wrote 282 hymns. I know we're familiar with some of those hymns, but the one that we're most familiar with and the one that he is the most famous for is, of course, Faith's Review in Expectation. Aren't you familiar with that song? Very popular song by John Newton, Faith's Review and Expectation. You say, I've never heard of it. (laughs) That's because it's not called that any longer. It's referred to as Amazing Grace. Are we amazed by grace? Are you today in awe and astonishment at the grace of the Lord? Can you think of a time in your spiritual life where grace was more amazing, more precious, more worthy of celebration than it is today. You know, we tend most days of the week as believers to say, I believe that I'm saved by grace alone. But being, believing that we're saved by grace alone and actually being dependent and amazed by grace is two different things. So we find ourselves slipping back into believing that our status before God is partly dependent on ourselves and partly dependent on on the Lord. The old divines used to put it this way. We start smuggling in or trying to smuggle in our own works and our own achievements and our own sanctification, our own fruitful works into the kingdom of God. We start mixing this daily um, almost elixir, our potion. Our Christian lives become ordinary rather than extraordinary. So does this sound familiar to you? The message title is Keeping Grace Amazing. Is grace still amazing for you today? Maybe here's a little test. Has your joy become lethargic? Has your enthusiasm for worship become frigid? Has your boldness for sharing the gospel and being a witness for Christ, have you become paralyzed in fear? Has your love for others become commonplace? All of these are signs that you may still believe that grace is the only way a person's saved, but you find yourself no longer amazed by grace. Maybe another way of thinking of it is this way. Do you find yourself sympathetic with the younger brother in Luke 15, the prodigal son? When he comes back home, he's rehearsed his speech, and he comes up the driveway He doesn't know that his father will be waiting on him. Certainly doesn't expect for his father to receive him and accept him. So he's got this little speech, and it's almost as if he's rehearsing his speech. I just want to be your servant. I don't deserve to be your son any longer. I mean, I took the inheritance. I I spent it on riotous living, as the King James Version says. I no longer deserve to be your son. Do you relate to him? And, And do you relate to the moment where this Jewish man totally against Jewish protocol, pulls up his robe and starts running. And he doesn't just run to him, he he hugs him and he kisses his neck. And then he says, bring him a robe, bring him a ring, let's have a party. I don't think that that younger brother in the story of the prodigal son was short of being amazed by grace. He was certainly amazed by grace. And I think all of us relate to that. I I know that when I was saved on July 3rd, 1985, I I remember the freshness of that grace coming on my soul. And there was a spring in my step. It was like everything in life became just a little bit easier because I knew that the ultimate problem that I had between me and God had been dealt with. And I was amazed by the grace. But have you ever noticed that we can kind of transform from the younger brother into the older brother? And sometimes it happens and we don't even perceive it happening. And so like the older brother who has been at home the whole time, he begins to look at the father like, what have you done for me lately? And I notice that sometimes even in my own walk with Christ that there was a freshness and a first love, as John says in Revelation, that the, the Ephesians had that, that I no longer have. So my question again to you this morning is, are you amazed by grace? How do we keep grace amazing? And this is why we've slowed down in this passage to some of our chagrin to say these vocabulary words of our salvation are like a good lozenger, like a good breath mint, like a good cough drop. You just suck on that thing and you continue to suck on it until it completely disintegrates. That's what we're trying to do with these words. So our word today is grace, and our phrase, if you'll see it again in your text, is this. We are justified by his grace as a what? As a gift. I want to give you a definition of grace. I know it's a precious word to believers, but here's the definition we're going to try to work with this morning. Grace is God's favor shown to us by giving us gifts that we don't deserve and that we do nothing in order to receive. I think that pretty much covers it. Grace is God's free favor shown to us by giving us gifts that we don't deserve and that we do nothing in order to receive it. We could say it another way. God deals with people not on the basis of their merit, not on the basis of their worthiness, not even on the basis of what they deserve. And all God's people said, praise God. But he deals with them on the basis of their need out of his own goodness and generosity. So so God supplies us with undeserved favors. Do You ever say to someone, would you please do me a favor? You ever ask anybody that? Maybe you have asked someone to do you a favor, or you've used the word grace in a variety of ways. Now, unlike some of these other words in the vocabulary of our salvation, the word grace we use a little more often in our English vocabulary. We may say, would you please say grace before a meal? You ever heard that? Or maybe you will talk about gratuity, which is what? A tip that you give someone who's served you well. Or we might say gratis. Gratis, we love those words. That means no charge. Or you might even name your daughter grace. We love the word grace. As Christians, we love to sing about grace. Just a quick search this week about the songs that in the first line start with the topic of grace. There are an amazing amount of hymns in our hymnal that start in the first line with saying something about grace. We love to sing about grace. But what is grace? Here it is again. Grace is that free favor shown to us by giving us gifts that God gives us that we don't deserve and that we do nothing in order to receive. Now, grace is one of those things that reminds us that God is not only great, but he's good. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Most of us who are theistic, we believe in a God, would not deny that God is great, yes? He is all powerful, we call that omnipotent. He is omnipresent, he's everywhere. He's omniscient, he knows everything. So we have this God who's great. But I wanna suggest to you that having a great God will not motivate you to love God. Think about it for a minute. If God were only great, and he is great, yes? He's great. But if God were only great, and we sing those kids' songs, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. I mean, there's nothing my God cannot do. That's a wonderful truth, that God is great. But, but let's imagine that this God that we serve is great, but he's not good. We're told that the great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do you love a God who's great, but not good? Conceivably, a great God who's not good could be immoral, or amoral, he could have no morals, you know what I'm saying? So so we want a God and we see a God in the Bible that's not just great, he's also good. Now why is this important? It's important because this passage is saying that it's whose grace, look at the passage again, verse 24 of Romans chapter three, and are justified by whose grace? His grace, now the his here is a pronoun This is not English class, but this is helpful. The antecedent for this pronoun is actually not Jesus' grace. Now, is it proper to talk about Jesus' grace? Yes, it is. But this grace is referred to as God the Father's grace. This is in reference to God the Father's grace that he has shown us. It goes back to verse 21, and he's saying that God is not only great, he's good. Now, in theology, if you were studying theology in a seminary or a doctrinal class, we would talk about God's goodness. And God's goodness means that our God is not only great, he can do all things, but in his very nature, he's good. Now, what does it mean that God is good? It means that he's loving. It means that he's benevolent. It means that he's holy and he's just. It means that he is merciful and he's long-suffering. He has a long fuse. He's not willing that any should perish. So our God is that, and he's also gracious. He gives gifts to people who don't deserve it. Amen? He, He gives things to people who actually don't deserve it, but they actually deserve judgment, but he gives them favors. That's grace. You see, our God gives us things, favors, and namely his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in this passage, because of our great need and his wonderful generosity. So can you love a God that's not only great, but good? The answer is yes. That's why you and I should be amazed by grace. But back to my question, is grace amazing to you? Or did you tune in this morning online or attended this morning here in person, and you would have to say, honestly... Grace doesn't amaze me anymore. It's one of those many things that I expect for us to sing about at church. I've got it on some of my Christian CDs. I expect to hear about it, but it doesn't really amaze me anymore. I want to give you three reasons from this passage why grace should amaze you. Number one, grace is amazing because it is apart from the law. Now, if that doesn't amaze you right now, it will in just a moment. Number one, grace should amaze you because it is apart from the law. Now I want you to look back at verse 21 because this is a whole passage. It's not just one verse. If you look back at verse 21 of chapter 3, look at the text. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Here are those four words. Say them with me. Apart from the law. Here it is again. Apart from the law. So what he is saying is grace is amazing because it has nothing to do with law keeping. That ought to make grace amazing to you because we are lawbreakers. now what does it mean to be justified just as a reminder again in case you haven't heard the messages before justified is a legal term if we're watching CSI is a forensic term and what it means is to be counted or judged as righteous perfect without any sin and the person doing that is God the Father he is looking at us and saying you are justified as though you have never sinned. I've forgiven all your sins, and I've given you the perfect righteousness that my son worked out for 33 and a half years on this planet. It's yours. Another way of looking at it, just by way of illustration, justification, we talked about it is a legal term, but it's also kind of a banking term. For some of you accountants, you may relate to this. We can talk about justification in terms of we use the word imputation I mentioned last week or the week before. In the South, we use the word reckon a lot. We talk about, I reckon it true. Reckon means to count something to be true that it is actually true. It's to justify or, or impute something. But in the banking world, it doesn't happen as often today. I've noticed that they don't ask me this question as much as they used to, but they still ask it from time to time. You'll go to a store and they'll say what? When you pull out that card, that piece of plastic, they'll say... Debit or, okay, debit or credit. Now, the simple difference between those two, and I'm certainly not an economist, but the difference between those two is, is debit has to do with what I have in my bank account. I'm good for it, right? Okay, so if there's nothing there, I'm not allowed to use a debit card, theoretically, unless I have an overdrawn or count or something. But a uh, debit card is what I'm good for. A credit is what I'm going to have to end up, what, paying. So if you were to think about it in those two columns We have what we're good for and what we owe. And according to the scriptures, verse 23, that very familiar word, that verse that says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he is saying that we all have in our credit column an infinite amount of debt that we can't pay. And in our debit column, we have nothing. Because even our works of righteousness, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags. So I have nothing in my debit column. I'm good for nothing in the sense of righteousness, and I have all of this debt. So what God has done in justifying us is he has taken away all of the debt, removed it. There's no longer any debt that you owe if you've been justified in God's sight. On the debit side, if we were to keep that in our imagery, he has placed all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which was infinite and perfect and will always be justifying. So now when God the Father looks at justified people, he sees them as though they have never sinned. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. Now, if that doesn't excite you about the amazement of grace, remember this phrase, grace is amazing because it is apart from the law. Here's what that simply means. You'll notice in the ESV that the word law is not capitalized. It's capitalized next because it's referring to the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. Or the, um, the Torah, the first five books of the, New, of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. But here it's referring to any attempt to bring good works to contribute to your salvation. He, he's saying that grace is apart from the law. You've been justified completely apart from the law. What does it mean to try to be justified by the law? Well, simply means this God gives a command, you try to obey it, then you come to God and say, I've obeyed it, so you must justify me. Can anybody do that? Can anybody take the commands of God, obey them, then come to God and say, I've obeyed all your commands, I wanna be justified? Well, let's look at verse 20 again, just to remind ourselves that no one exists in that category. Look at verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be what? Justified in his sight. Because we're told that the law actually is supposed to bring the knowledge of sin. So what he's saying is there's no contribution, there's no participation that you bring to the table in order to be justified. That's why grace is amazing. You don't bring anything, I don't bring anything. We don't contribute one iota to our salvation. That's why I love the lyrics to that old hymn, Rock of Ages, Listen to one of the verses. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Now, I want you to look again at verse 23 to get just a broader picture of what it means to be saved, justified, apart from the law. Well, it says in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the what? So, what he's saying here is that in chapter 1 to 3, he's told us that everybody's equally guilty, although they might not be equally bad. Everybody falls short at the end of the day. Maybe I could illustrate it like this. I want you to imagine that we're going on a vacation, all of us. We're going on a vacation of a lifetime. Wouldn't that be great? We're going to get on an airplane. We're going to fly to Zambia, Africa. We'll probably have to land in South Africa, and then we'll end up in Zambia, Africa. We're going to go on a safari. We're going to go to Victoria Falls. Beautiful place. I've been there. Beautiful place. We're going to go there. But let's imagine that we're halfway over the Atlantic, headed to Zambia, Africa, on this wonderful trip. By the way, this is where Max Mumba's from. He's from Zambia, Africa. But we're headed to Zambia, Africa for this wonderful vacation. And all of a sudden, there are these people, these terrorists. And this is a horrible thing to imagine. But I want you to imagine these terrorists with masks, they, they take over the plane. They hijack the plane. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you were really disappointed when you got on the plane to find out you were in a coach seat. You thought, you know, Fuller could have done better than this. But I'm in a coach seat at the back of the airplane with people over the size of the chairs in in between. You ever been on a long flight like that? And you're all the way back towards the bathroom. So it's just a bad place to be. And then as you walked in, you saw all those people in first class and all of the dainties that they're receiving and all the accoutrements of first class. But I want you to just think for a moment. when, When that plane is hijacked, is there any difference between those that are sitting in first class, and those that are sitting in the back of the plane and coach. There's no difference at all. I mean, we're all at the mercy of the what? The terrorist. What this passage is saying to us is there might have been some people who kept the law a little better than you. Or I might have kept the law a little better than you. But the problem is we are all short of the glory of God. And so this grace is amazing because it's completely apart from the law. Did you ever read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? He talks about early on about his friend Faithful. And Faithful was reminiscing about a story about when he was going up the hill difficulty. And he ran into somebody who decided to tell him, you need to mix law with faith and you need to kind of mix it together and like this potion you need to have human effort and you need to trust in the Lord and he said I felt so beat down and I began to cry out mercy 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 and then there was this guy over the top of me and he said I can't give you mercy I don't know how to give you mercy he said what's your name he said my name's Moses now in John Bunyan's allegory he's saying that Moses represents the law and the law can't give mercy all the law can do is say you got a problem and faithful said, when I was just about to die, beat up by Moses, there was another wonderful man who showed up with holes in his hands. And he showed me the way of grace. Now, who was that man in holes in his hands? It was the Lord Jesus. And, and, and the simple metaphor is this that apart from the law, there is this grace now that's available. You know, this has really died deep into our souls. And what we need to do is we need to gulp it up. We need to meditate on it. Trying to present something like this is so important for us to consider because we need it mentally, we need it personally, we need it psychologically because we are prone to this great enemy of joy. You know what the great enemy of joy is? Is believing that we could bring something to God to make him accept us more. Rather than rejoicing in this free grace that's offered to us in the gospel. So how can you meditate more and be more amazed by grace, understanding that grace is amazing because it's apart from the law? I'm glad you asked. One of the ways you can do that is by memorizing Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. It's a great thing for you to do. So if you haven't started to do that and you say, grace has not been amazing to me lately, memorize this passage, meditate on it. Sing songs about the gospel. We've had many of those sung today. A chin church every Sunday where the gospel's preached. So is grace amazing to you? Grace should be amazing to you because it is apart from the law. Secondly, grace is amazing because it is a gift. Now you'll notice he says, by his grace as a what? now my English teacher Mrs Mayfield would have said something to me very clearly if I had said something like this she she would say that you have committed one of those errors Brian called redundancy I want to suggest to you that this is a glorious redundancy (laughs) he says that it is his grace given to us as a gift you would say if you say it's his grace you don't have to say it's a gift but What the Holy Spirit is doing here is he's saying, listen, grace should be amazing to you because it is actually free of charge. You have nothing to offer to it. Whose grace is it again? I want you to notice that it is God the Father's grace. It's not my grace. I haven't done anything to contribute to it. But it's given to us as a gift. Now, I've mentioned this to you. I think this is a third occasion. So the third time's a charm you should write by this passage the scripture John 15 25 because the same word is used in a different way in John 15 25 jesus said they hated me without a cause so the word gift there that's translated gift in your english standard version is the phrase without a cause or for no reason did anybody have a reason to hate jesus no no reason to hate the son of god And he's using that same word here. He's saying, you have received this grace as a gift for no reason. There is not one reason that you can bring to say, I deserve this. He says it's freely. So from our angle, it's in spite of what I've done. And he has given this grace to us free of charge. This is God the Father bestowing this wonderful grace on you. We should not even envision that this grace is from Jesus in this passage. Now, again, I'm not saying that we do not rejoice in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What I'm suggesting to you is this context is saying it's the Father who's demonstrated this grace. It's consistent with one of our favorite verses, isn't it? John 3.16, for God the Father... So loved the world that he gave his what? His willing, submissive son who came to seek and to save that which was lost and give his life a ransom for many. But it's God the Father's grace. I want to remind you of a passage that I, I referred to in my pastoral prayer today. is found in Ephesians 1. And we're told in Ephesians 1 verse 3 that the Father has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And here's one of those blessings. This brings fear to some people. It shouldn't. It should bring you comfort. It says, He chose us before the foundation of the world. Now, I want to ask you something. Were you able to do any works of the law before the foundation of the world? You know the answer to that. If the Father showed his grace and was determined to show his saving grace to us before the foundation of the world, what does that tell us about any effort that I could contribute? There is no reason. He has shown us this grace without a cause. Now, some people, again, hear Ephesians 1, and they hear that the Father chose us before the foundation of the world, and they start going, well, what does that mean? How do I know if I'm chosen or not? I'll refer you to another passage, a parable that Jesus told us in Matthew 22. Do you remember this one about the wedding? He said that there was a king who wanted to have a wedding feast for his son. He invited all of these special guests, the people that should have been invited, family, friends, people who knew the family, other wealthy, beautiful people. They all turned them down. They wouldn't come to the wedding. In fact, he sent out more servants to say, please come to the wedding. They kill the servants. Then the king, very angry, said, I want you new servants to go out and invite everybody. Poor people, doesn't matter. Invite them to the wedding. They arrive at the wedding, and the wedding hall is full, we're told in the text. They all have wedding garments because they've been placed on these wedding garments. doesn't matter who you were, where you came from. You got invited. You got the wedding garment. But the head of ceremonies was walking around at this wedding feast, and he saw a guy without a wedding garment on. You know what he said? Excuse me, friend. Where's your wedding garment? Now, I believe this was one of the original people that got invited that turned it down and thought they could just show up. Based on their connections, their pedigree. And we're told according to the parable, he was cast out into outer darkness and then Jesus comes out from the story and he says, many are called, but few are chosen. You see, the, 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 the anguish should not be am I called? It, it should be What are your wedding garments on? What wedding garments do you have on? Is it the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Because it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ, he's saying, he's called all of these people. Whosoever will, may what? Come, come freely, if you're thirsty, come. You know what you'll get, a wedding garment. It's not your own, it's not because you deserved it, it's a gift, and it's actually the wedding garments of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is what makes grace amazing. You see, we're accustomed to tit for tat, right? If somebody takes you out to eat, what do you think you need to do within the next month? I need to take them out to eat, right? I mean, even in Christian circles, we have this kind of Christian tit for tat. It's like our version of uh, quid pro quo, <laughs> An overused phrase for sure. You know, you scratch my back, I'm going to what? Scratch yours. And so we live under this legalistic kind of a mindset that if We're given something, we have to what? We're obligated to what? To to kind of settle the debt. Folks, this is the amazing thing about grace. It's a gift. There's nothing you could have or can contribute to this wonderful salvation. Finally, Is grace amazing to you? It should be amazing to you because it's apart from the law. Secondly, it is a gift. Thirdly, it's received by faith. And this is gonna be our word for next week, but I just wanna say a few things about it. You'll notice in verse number 25, he says he's the propitiation and it's to be received by what? By faith. Now I want you to just turn your Bible over a page to chapter four, verse 16. And in chapter four, verse 16, he's going to say, this is the way you know that it is by grace if it's received by faith. Look at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promises may rest on grace. Do you see that? I'll read it again. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Think with me for a minute. This is a theological axiom. It's a theological principle. It's kind of a rule. And here's the rule. If it's by grace, it will be received by faith. Think about it this way. I've run some races in my life, and I expect at the end of that race, if it's a well-done race, there's going to be a medal, an award ceremony after the race. That's just what you have. If you don't have one of those, it's really disappointing. You're kind of like, why did I do this? You're looking forward to an award, a medal, maybe even just one of participation after the race. But what are the expectations there? The expectations are I did the work, I did the race, I did the training, and now I get a what? An award for that. Same thing's true if you go to work. I have a feeling you don't send too many thank you notes to your employer about the paycheck you received in the mail. Hey, I just want to tell you again, thank you for sending the check this week. Now, maybe if they don't send a check, you send thank you notes. But generally, we don't thank our employer for something that we what? Earned. Because it's received by faith, just simply trusting, that means that it's all of what? All of grace. You see, if the way you receive this is not by any work of righteousness that you have done or that I have done, it's simply trusting in God's promise that He will justify sinners who place their trust in Jesus Christ, who's purchased their redemption, then we know it is a gift of God's grace. Finally, Do you have a problem with a John Newton after being a slave trader and living a riotous life, simply getting startled in a storm and becoming a convert? You say, well, he wrote some good songs like Amazing Grace, so I'm okay with it. Well, let me test you again. On July 22, 1992, police found a man standing on the street corner with handcuffs on in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. When the police began to to further converse with him, he said that he was escaping from another man who was trying to kill him. They followed up, went to an apartment, and they found an apartment that they could only describe as a chamber of horrors. The floor was littered with skulls, it was littered with bones. They opened the freezer and they found human body parts and they found out that this apartment, discovered in July 1992, was the apartment of none other than Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, Jeffrey Dahmer was one of the most gruesome killing sprees, or, or participated in the most gruesome killing spree in American history. 17 men and boys for 14 years. He sodomized. He even cannibalized. But last week, we had Steve Pettit here, and Steve Pettit, friend of mine, he was telling me a story about how, or he tells a story about how he has friends in the Wisconsin prison there, or go into the Wisconsin prison, and soon after he was incarcerated, they went in to visit Jeffrey Dahmer, and according to these witnesses, which I believe, Jeffrey Dahmer, and you can even see this on Wikipedia, and Wikipedia doesn't lie, right? Um, Jeffrey Dahmer had them visit, and they gave him the gospel, gave him a Bible, and over time, he admitted that he was a sinner and asked the Lord Jesus to save him. He was then killed not long after that, in prison by another inmate. Do you have a problem with that at all? That a Jeffrey Dahmer, who has lived such a horrific life and has ruined so many lives, heard the gospel, and simply realized, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to that cross I cling, and I can have the same grace? Folks, I I believe, based on trusting these witnesses, that I will actually see Jeffrey Dahmer in heaven. Now, again, if we have a problem with it, we've missed something. And I finish with this story. Again, a hypothetical, but imagine we're at the Grand Canyon. I don't know how many of you have seen the Grand Canyon, but imagine you're on the southern lip, and someone else is way down there. We'll call him Jeffrey Dahmer. He's all the way down at the bottom of the Colorado River. Now, when you're looking down at Jeffrey Dahmer, like we look at him even today, you go, man, he is a creep. He's in the depths. But I want you to imagine that somebody else is on the surface of the moon looking down at both of us. Now, from their perspective, looking from the moon, I'm on the rim of the Grand Canyon. He's down at the bottom at the Colorado River. The truth of the matter is we're both so far away from where? The moon. Verse 23 says, for all have what? sin." And we all equally are guilty and fall short of the what? Glory of God. Listen, folks. Jesus Christ, through his propitiation and redemption, will wipe your sins away. But if you do not receive Jesus, you do not place your faith in Jesus, your sins will wipe you away. Folks, the word of God is consistently clear. You better get saved. That's what it means to be justified. You better be born again or you will die and go to hell. You say, well, I, I've got these works that I've done. I, I've been a, a, a church member. Maybe you've been a church member at EBBC for decades. That's standing on the lip of the Grand Canyon while you have to reach the moon to glorify God. You will be equally damned at the great day of judgment if you do not place your complete trust in Jesus Christ. If you were to ask an Orthodox Jew, if you died, would you go to heaven? They would probably say, yes. And you ask why, they would say, well, I love the law of God. You ask a Muslim, another one of the great religions, if you die today, would you go to paradise? They would say, yes. I, and you ask why, they'd say, I love the Koran. I've gone on pilgrimages. I give alms to the poor. But if you ask a Christian, if you die today, do you know you go to heaven? And they say yes, the only right answer would be if you said, well, why? Well, I'm a great sinner. I was born in sin my mother conceived me in sin, and I deserve God's wrath, but I'm trusting in the virtue and righteousness of someone else. His name is Jesus Christ. And the reason why I know that I'm going to go to heaven is because I need no other argument, I need no other plea. I'm trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Does grace still amaze you? It's apart from the law, it's a gift, and it's received by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. You have displayed that grace so clearly in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come this morning humbled that we have nothing to bring. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Naked, we cry to you for dress. We cling to the cross. And I ask, Lord, today for those under the sound of my voice who hear through live stream or hear in person, we pray for all of us that our only plea would be the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the grace that has been shown to us by you in justifying us freely for no reason except you're a good God and a gracious God who's met our need. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.